You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To quote my guest, psychiatry is, to be sure, the ultimate rulemaker of acceptable behavior through its ability to specify what counts as crazy. Welcome to a special segment on psychiatry. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Toronto, Canada, is historian Edward Shorter, the Jason A. Hanna Chair in the History of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Shorter is the author of numerous books on the history of medicine, including A History of Psychiatry and his latest book, Shock Therapy, A History of Electroconvulsive Treatment in Mental Illness. Welcome, Dr. Shorter. Hi. Dr. Shorter, can you elaborate on the idea of psychiatry as the rulemaker of acceptable behavior? Uh, Take sexual behavior, for example. Uh, We have as a culture a general idea of what is on and and what is not on in sexual terms. And it turns out that psychiatry, which uh, flatters itself as being a discipline based on science, often turns out to be a gatekeeper or an enforcer in the area of sexuality. The classification of diseases that psychiatrists use is called DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual put out by the American Psychiatric Association. And its current incarnation, which is called DSM-IV-TR, standing for text revision, has a, a good deal to say about sexuality and what is considered to be appropriate and inappropriate sexuality. And so, well, just a bit of background. For example, DSM-IV-TR has no problem at all with homosexuality, and that's fine. But in uh, the years before 1980, homosexuality was seen as a psychiatric disorder in the eyes of psychiatry. As society as a whole came to accept homosexuality as just another band on the spectrum of normal sexuality, the psychiatric diagnostic manual changed as well, so that today... Uh, homosexuality is seen as entirely unproblematical, entirely non-pathological. But hey, what is still pathological today? Well, anything having to do with what is now called role-playing, i.e. exchange of power in a sexual relationship with one person on top and the other section on the bottom. In large parts of the real world, this is seen as quite acceptable behavior, role-playing. People uh, like to dress up on a Friday night and tie each other to the bed and so forth. This is not everybody's cup of tea, but hey, neither is homosexuality. And yet role-playing under the terms masochism and sadism remains deeply stigmatized in the current manual of psychiatric diagnostics. So that's an example from the area of sexuality of how uh, psychiatrists remain gatekeepers, rule-makers, if you wish. Right, so that, that these diagnoses are, are pretty subjective. You, you also, in your writing, talk about revisionism in the recording of the history of psychiatry. So not only in psychiatry and, and how it has evolved, but also in how it has been recorded. It, you really take exception with, in particular, how it, it has been um, recorded and the influences of how it was recorded in the 1960s. Well, it's like they say that uh, history is written by the victors. Whoever wins gets to write the history of the battles. And that's true in the history of psychiatry as well. In the middle third of the 20th century, for example, psychoanalysis was the big victor. You as a psychiatrist would be trained in the principles of 
psychoanalysis in your training program, and indeed there was a good chance that you might go on and do a special sort of diploma at a psychoanalytic training institute. All of the chairs of the major departments in the United States and Canada were trained as psychoanalysts. And the historians of psychiatry in the 1950s and 60s were all psychoanalytically oriented. They looked back at the more distant past and they deplored biological psychiatry. Just imagine, ha ha ha, psychiatrists in the 19th century once thought that mental illness was determined by the brain rather than the mind, whereas we all know that unconscious conflict is what makes patients symptomatic in psychiatry. Well, all right, that was the history of psychiatry in the 1960s and 70s, written by the victors, written by historians of psychiatry who agreed with the victors in psychiatry, the psychoanalysts. And then all of a sudden, the pendulum started to swing back. Psychoanalysis began to go out of style in psychiatry, and biological psychiatry came back in. And so biological psychiatry is also today big among historians, including myself. And I think the proper mainline narrative in the history of psychiatry is really the narrative of how biologically oriented psychiatrists in the past, uh, such as the German heavyweights of the 19th century, pioneered the study of the interaction between brain and mind, and the historians of psychoanalysis are no longer read. I mean, who really cares today all that much about how Freud made his discoveries in Vienna in 1900, a wonderful place in cultural terms. But I, I, I wonder what we'll be saying in 100 years, because you are mentioning that you are saying what you say. Within yeah, I, I'm unable to release myself the, from the shackles of my own time right, any, right. any more than others. Where in 100 years from now, people can look back and say, can you imagine there were right. once historians such as Edward Shorter who thought that neurotransmitters were important? Ha, ha, ha. Is this any different than the recording of the history of any other type of medicine? This is different from other kinds of medicine, and that other kinds of medicine aren't usually that controversial. Other kinds of medicine don't split into schools and have journals of their own that are continuous war. There are no rival schools of cardiology where there are different journals of cardiology that are continually at each other's throats. There are no major camps of opinion in nephrology with the different nephrologists trying to uh, tear each other's eyes out. Psychiatry is different. Psychiatry remains a very controversial field simply because, unlike cardiology and nephrology, the basic mechanisms of illness in psychiatry are not yet known. We don't know why people become melancholic or catatonic or schizophrenic, and it's this absence of a firm platform of neuroscience on which to rest the clinical discipline of psychiatry that leaves it subject to fads. And the moment you are unable to disprove somebody else's ideas, at that moment you have the formation of faddish schools of thought that are still around simply because nobody can prove them wrong. Dr. Shorter, you've written that psychiatry itself had a role in lowering the threshold defining psychological illness and that this has led to a boom in the number of people receiving services. How did the profession contribute to this situation? The trivialization of psychiatric illness began with DSM-3 in 1980. And it really began 
with this incredible multiplication of the number of psychiatric disorders, the current manual of uh, classification of illness, which is DSM-4, has almost 400 different disorders in it. And some of these disorders will inevitably turn out to be artifacts. Look, for example, at what has happened to depression. Before the advent of DSM-3 in 1980, there were two very clearly identified depressions as different really as mumps and measles. There was melancholia or melancholic depression, which was a serious brain illness involving uh, high levels of cortisol and uh, a positive response to something known as the dexamethasone suppression test. And there was non-melancholic illness, which used to be called nervousness or neurasthenia. And that was a much less clearly defined phenomenon involving character pathology, a heavy admixture of anxiety, reactive depression, and there weren't any biological markers for non-melancholic depression. All right, so DSM-3 in 1980 says, oh, listen, uh, it's untenable. There should be these two different concepts. We don't believe in biological markers anyway. Let's just call everything major depression. At the same time, the pharmaceutical industry, for reasons having nothing to do with the history of classification, had started pumping out antidepressant drugs. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s, the psychoactive medications were all indicated for anxiety. But then anxiety started to go out of favor. And in the search for other indications, the manufacturers were guided by the Food and Drug Administration towards depression. FDA said, from now on, we don't really believe that much in anxiety. We believe that depression is the major illness, and if you produce agents that are not suitable for depression, we, we won't license them. And so it was this combination of industry being encouraged to produce antidepressants and the creation of this new illness called major depression, which just about anybody could qualify for, that led to this extraordinary extension of the concept of depression. So that nowadays, we all have just tons of friends who believe themselves to be depressed. This is the subject of cocktail parties, how depressed we are. Uh, people are on the SSRIs, which are the current patent-protected generation of drugs for depression. Most of them have gone off patent now, but in any event, terms like Zoloft and Paxil and Prozac have absolutely become household names. And so what previously would have been called unhappiness has now become medicalized, and it's now called depression. But, hey, you know, the good news is that we've got a treatment right here ready at hand for your depression. It's called Prozac. And not only are there prescriptions, but there are also other mental health professionals who moved in to help treat this huge population of, of the new sub-threshold patients, patients with non-medically-based problems. And something interesting happened in the field of psychiatry at that time. The psychiatrists didn't step back and just clearly define and work with severe mental illness, did they? In the 1960s and 70s, the rule was that the sicker you were, the less were your chances of seeing a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists trained from about 1950 to 1980 were trained to administer psychotherapy. And people with serious psychiatric illnesses, such as melancholia or psychotic depression, aren't suitable for psychotherapy. And clinicians who live mainly from a psychotherapeutic practice really don't want to treat them. They don't want uh, psychotic patients. They, they don't want schizophrenics. They don't know how to uh, prescribe for them. They, they don't know how to deal with them. What they like 
for what they used to like were the depressed housewives or the uh, depressed middle-class women, whether housewives or not, who love to pour out their souls, their unhappiness, uh, sort of intimate psychotherapeutic sessions, after which the patients would feel much better for the cathartic experience. But hey, guess what? There was never anything the matter with them in the first place. They were just unhappiness. Unhappiness is not a psychiatric illness. And so that's why I use a term like trivialization. There are very serious psychiatric illnesses, but your chances of, of seeing a psychiatrist who has a main street practice, a community practice, are not good if you have one of them. Thank you for listening to this special segment on psychiatry on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been historian Dr. Edward Shorter. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Shorter. A pleasure. Thank you for listening.